Craig Schmel has a world-class knack for talking himself into places he wasn't supposed to be. Just to name a few, let's go through them. You've driven inside a presidential motorcade, Reagan's motorcade? That is correct. He's gotten high inside the Kremlin. That is correct. He sung on stage at the Grammys. I did, indeed. Okay. All of these things are very interesting, but the most stunning thing about them is that he wasn't invited to any of them. When his life finally hit rock bottom, he had to figure out who he was and what his place in life was going to be going forward to be a better man. His life journey is what inspired him to write The Uninvited, How I Crashed My Way into Finding Myself, this amazing book we're going to hear all about. Welcome, Craig Schmel. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. you. Thanks for coming. Thank you for having me. So talk to me about where you're from and your childhood and how you got into all this. I am from Rockland County, New City, New York, Mm -hmm. just near the Tappan Zee Bridge. I graduated Syracuse University, went to law school on Long Island, and then lived in New York City. And it all started because back in the 80s, uh, if you were a guy or two or three guys trying to get into a nightclub, uh, it was very hard to get into Studio 54 or any of the great nightclubs. And I had to figure out a way to get in, and I did. That's great. But you had all these great credentials. I mean, you went to some good schools. You obviously are very handsome, so it doesn't seem very hard. I'm sure the ladies you know, were not a problem for you. So why couldn't you get in on your own accord, do you think? Because... Back in those days, I was a nobody. I was mm-hmm. still in school, okay. and I didn't have a lot of money. Mm-hmm. And if you didn't tip the doorman a lot or you didn't show up with a bevy of women, they just didn't let guys in. Right. Well, it's similar still today. I mean, I used to run the door at many clubs, and that was still that was still the idea then. Okay, so go on. So what would you say to get into So I would call a nightclub. In advance, because mm, I always knew if you had a name of somebody, it gave you credibility. Mm. And usually, they wouldn't even give me a name. And I would say I was there the other night and left my jacket. Who is the manager? Mm. And they would give me a manager's name, and I would say, "Oh, yeah, I believe that's him." You know what? Let me call you back. I have to do. So now I had a name. Oh wow! And I would call back maybe an hour later and ask for that name, and then usually try to get them on the phone. And say, hi, my name is Craig Schmel. I was at the club Saturday night. We happened to meet. You You were very nice. You gave me your card. And usually when you kind of throw that at somebody, they meet so many people. They they don't remember. They don't remember. And they were, didn't want to embarrass you by saying, I don't remember. Right. So usually they would say, oh, yeah. And then I'd say, listen, you, you mentioned if I want, I'm in town and I, if I want to come back, you would. You know, put my name at the door. Mm-hmm. Very and then once smart. I got there, mm-hmm. I would go say hello to the door, the, the manager, get a card now for real, and now meet the doorman, get a name. Mm-hmm. And now I had names. And now you're somebody. Now and I'm now, somebody. now they recognize your That's face. That's correct. Okay, so, what, so it started with nightclubs. Correct. And then what was the next step up from nightclubs? The next one, well, I went to Russia. Okay during my junior year of college. Mm -hmm. And I studied in London and we went to Russia and some friends had told me, if you sell your jeans in Russia, you can make thousands of rubles. Is that true? It's true, yeah. (laughs) Wow, okay. Because they didn't have jeans back in the day in in the old uh, Soviet Union. 
And we sold our jeans, made a lot of money. I had a limousine, a chauffeur, a translator. I snuck marijuana into Russia. This was probably the stupidest thing I've ever done. And then we talked our way into the Kremlin and we smoked pot in the Kremlin and we marched in the May Day Parade. Oh and I, I just would take things to the nth teen limit. Oh and, my goodness. And it was because I was 20 something years old and I just didn't think. There were consequences. I didn't think there were consequences. Right. Yeah. So before we get into the end result, let's talk about more of your war story so people really understand kind of where you were going with this. So you did that. I know you, you drank out of the Stanley Cup, right? Right. Did you know a player? No. After a while, we started to realize that if you had a laminated pass on your neck, mm. it gave you now instant credibility. <sighs> Because no one ever looked at the laminated passes, but if it looked, we had this, you know, saying that it's not who you are, it's who they think you are. Right. And if they think you belong, you belong. Mm. So we started to create laminated passes for events and it just, and it just skyrocketed. Oh my gosh. So you and your friends would get into these. We would get into events. the greatest events. I started going to premieres of movies. Mm -hmm. uh, at the Ziegfeld, the Grammys at Radio City, MTV Music Awards at Radio City. The Rangers won the Stanley Cup in 94. We, made, we had VIP passes for the locker room, mm -hmm. and that's how I got into the locker room for the night the Rangers won the Stanley Cup. Wow. And now tell me about the Grammys. Grammys was probably the greatest night of my life <laughs> and the worst night of my life. Uh, I was in my apartment the night before, Channel 7, Tappy Phillips is reporting live from the Grammys. Tomorrow is the 30th anniversary of the Grammys, 1988. It's going to be the greatest night in the history of music. Michael Jackson, Stevie Wonder, U2, Billy Joel. It was an endless- Huge lineup. And this is the night before. And I said to my buddies, I'm going to go down to Radio City to- see if I can find something to get us in for the next night. And another thing I forgot to mention is another way I got into nightclubs is I had asthma as a child. Mm. So I had an inhaler from a, that I had that I never used, but I would use it for doormen to get into nightclubs too. I would say I left, went to my car to get my inhaler. I'm just returning. Wow. And so if I had a prop, it gave me even more credibility. Wow. And this, you never, nobody ever stopped you. No one ever stopped me. This is incredible. So I went to the Grammys the night before, mm -hmm. big burly guard at the front door. I said, I'm sorry to bother you. I had to go to my car to get my inhaler and he let me in. Now this is the night before. So he's not thinking anything. And I'm now walking around looking for something to give me credibility for the next night. Right. Long story Props short. Again. You know, I yeah. I find a business card on the ground that says Michael Huddle hairdressers. I go into Whitney Houston's dressing room. I take her invitation. Wait, wait, wait. How did you even get near the dressing room without- It's the night before. You could walk you anywhere. You could just walk anywhere. Nobody stopped me. Incredible. Because okay. it's the night before. You and would think that they had a lot of security all over the place. Not the night before. Well, whatever. So right. Any night. Okay, yeah. go ahead. So <laughs> I walked around gathering props, and then I hear about the production office down below the stage. And I go to the production room, 
where there's all these desks and it says hotels, after parties, limousines, and there's a desk with a big sign that says VIP passes. Oh my goodness. I go up to the young lady and I said, hi, how are you today? And based on that answer, I would know what I'm dealing with. (laughs) If somebody says, fine, thank you. How are you? I know I, and she was very nice. And I said, listen, and I held up the Michael Huddle hairdresser card I found when I first walked in. Mm -hmm. And I said, I'm sorry to bother you. I'm working with Michael Huddle hairdressers. I lost my VIP pass. Could you just give me another one? And if I find mine, I promise to bring it back. Uh And I had also found the broken tag one of those chains, dog tag chains right. that I put around my neck that was broken. Oh, so it made so it look like the story was true. It made it look like true. I lost my VIP pass. Right. She said, what's your name? I now fi- decided, do I give her my real name or a fake name? Because uh-huh. if you give her your real name now, they, have, they can find you. Right. Long story short, I gave her my real name. I showed her my ID, mm-hmm. gave me m- even more credibility. Mm-hmm. And she said, listen, I really shouldn't be doing this, but you seem like a good guy. Here's a VIP. And get, she gave me an all-access VIP pass. And I took it and ran, got out of there as quickly as humanly possible, went back to my buddies who were still in my apartment. And the next morning, we went and photocopied the pass, made a bunch of copies. My buddy Barry came with me. My other buddy chickened out. And uh, we went in with our, our tuxedos. Walked the red carpet like we belonged. And, you walked the red carpet. Yes. Wow. And did which, you stop for photographs? It wasn't as big back then, okay. but and so it wasn't like the the paparazzi. Not line. as crazy. It was still crazy, mm-hmm. but not like today. And no, uh, we figured out we had known from previous events that they have what's called fillers mm-hmm. that are hired that stand on the side of the stadium, and when the stars are away from their seats during the filming, the fillers go sit in their seats. And we found three seats right in the front, two seats right in the front, my third row right behind Michael Jackson and Whitney Houston and uh, Billy Joel. And I took pictures with them and- and no one asked you to move. No, no one said, who no, are you guys? We no. have other I think fillers. we were in U2 seats and they never came back. And we, and we were backstage because <laughs> we had the passes. Mm-hmm. And then for the finale, it was hosted by Billy Crystal. Uh, they asked Billy Crystal, asked all the stars to come on stage to do to sing together for the 30th anniversary. Mm-hmm. Everybody went on stage, and I looked at my friend Barry, and I said, I'm going up. <laughs> and I went on stage, and I stood next to Michael Jackson and Whitney Houston, said hello to them. They were lovely. They were standing in the back. And then I realized they're filming, and I said, listen, and I kind of walked and you see me on video of me walking to the front. They were singing a song and they handed me, he put the mic in front of my face and there I was singing, singing for the, the world at the Grammys. Wow. But it was the greatest night, but yet the worst night of my life. It was the greatest night because I could achieve anything and could bullshit my way to the top of the world. But mm-hmm. it was the worst night because I started to believe, you know, my own shit. And right. pardon my French, that I can lie and manipulate my way. Uh, it was kind of the beginning of the end for me kind of changing my life. So did you have a job now at this time? I had a job, but I wasn't working har- hard. I went from job to job. I, I, was, I could barely keep a job for more than three to six months. 
And so going out seemed to be like what you were looking forward to at the Correct. end of the day or While the While my friends were going to work all day, I was doing nothing and it was my time to shine at night. Right. And plan your next heist at night Correct. or whatever. And, and your friends, did they see you as like a hero about this or they thought you were a con artist? At the beginning, I was a hero. And then as I wasn't working, being, living up to my potential, you know, friends started to kind of say, listen, you're too toxic for us. Right. Because I was having way too much fun. Got it. And did you ever get caught at any point? Did anyone stop you? Never. No. We got caught at Radio City when I took about 12 guys to to see The Who perform Tommy. Wow. And we made fake passes and a couple of the guys got caught because this, we had the same pass and somebody saw oh. that it wasn't numbered and they and a couple of guys got co- kicked out and I left with them mm. because I didn't want to you know to stay without my friends. My right. brother ended up staying and I think another friend stayed but I left but that was the only time we got caught because it got to the point where we were taking 10 people we would make copies of these passes. Right. And I would go to shows with bring 5 10 friends. So at this point in your life, you're living your best life. You're going out. You're having fun, but you don't really have any stable work or things going no. on. Did you have a girlfriend? I had a girlfriend and a couple on the side. Yes. Oh, and a couple on the side. Did she know about the couple? On no, the side? no, no, no. Got it. Okay. No. Did she? Did that end up be, becoming a problem? The women on the side. I mean, <laughs> it became a problem. Yes. Okay. So we'll get to that. So what started to be sort of the tipping point for you? I was drinking more and more mm. uh, as I was just kind of spiraling. Okay. And my time to shine was at night. Right. But I had no clue why, how. You know, I had gone to great schools. I had a lot of potential. And I was just lost. Mm-hmm. But. In my back of my mind, I always would think that I had this great potential, and I kind of felt if I ever channeled it in a proper direction, I probably could do something productive. Right. But I, I was stuck. Right. Well, it seems like you had these great skills because you obviously could talk to anybody. You could negotiate or weasel your way into any scenario. And it was almost like you had this mentality of fake it till you make it, and you made it every time. So those skills are actually really good, but probably if you put them in the right place, if they're in the wrong and place, And I think that's the dangerous. reason why my parents continued to enable mm. me. They saw that I had potential and didn't want to you know, disrupt. And they, the tough love was about to come. Right. And it came December 7th of 1990. Ooh, and what happened then? They showed up at my apartment on a Saturday morning. I was hungover, sleeping, and they proceeded to read me the riot act. And how old were you at this point? 28. Okay. And what was the riot act in this situation? The riot act was my mother said, I love you, but I don't like you. And my father said, I have more respect for a bum on the street corner wiping windows at red lights at least he's trying to make something of his life wow you have more potential in your pinky than anybody i've ever met and you're not even trying and it all stops here and he said essentially either you get help 
and we will support you and help you and be there with you or continue on the destructive path you're on and you are dead to us. Wow. We don't want to know from you ever again. Don't call. Don't write. You're out of my will. Don't call your brothers. You're dead to us. So were they financially supporting you? Were they yeah, taking that course. away yeah. from yeah. you yeah. at They've, that point? Essentially, the enablers came and stopped enabling. So obviously, that was going to be hard for you. So you couldn't talk your way out of that. I, I would have been homeless because they were helping with the rent. Oh, with the rent, too. I didn't, I didn't own a wallet, a watch. I, uh, I didn't have a bank account. Got it. So the job you had or the job- At that point, I didn't even have a job and was lying to my parents that I did. Oh, boy. Okay. So it was an ultimatum. It wasn't like, we're stopping. It was like, you need to stop or else. Correct. So how did that go over? (laughs) I went home with them because they said either you stay here and we'll leave and you're dead to us or come home and get help and we'll help you. I I had no choice. Essentially, I went home and- I met a man who would change my life. So were you at the point where you were drinking a lot? Were you doing drugs a lot? Or was it just the lying that was so It was everything, right? I, and I, I couldn't understand it. I didn't understand it. I, it was just survival. Mm. And, you know, I just saw the world. and I, No one ever taught me certain things I was taught essentially. And I came from a great family and went to great schools, but you know, you do whatever you have to do to survive. Yeah. You know, and I knew lots of people that cheated. I knew lots of people that smoked pot regularly. I knew lots of people that drank. I just took it a little to the extreme and I just didn't, I couldn't see clearly. I was just lost. Right. Or there was no end game. It seems like that happens maybe a lot for kids at, a certain point and then they stop and then they're forced to go get a job on Wall Street or at a bookstore. It doesn't matter Correct. where, but they're just forced to do something to change that and find some stability. And my enablers allowed me to postpone that. Got it. Yeah. So you were talking about meeting a man that changed your life. Tell me I, about that. I met a, a psychiatrist by the name of Dr. Arthur Knauert, Dr. K. Mm-hmm. And essentially my life changed after him getting to know who I was and how I was living my life, he asked me a very simple question. And that simple question was, do you like yourself? Hmm. And nobody had ever asked me that. And I said, yes. And he said, really, tell me why. And I said, well, I have a great apartment in New York City, a hot girlfriend and great family. And he said, Craig, that's not a reason (laughs) to like yourself. And he had, I had been telling him about my life, and he pointed out the window to a stranger. And he said, do you see that stranger walking? And I said, yes. He said, keep your eye on that stranger. And I said, okay. And he said, what if I told you that stranger was you? What if I told you that stranger, you, has underachieved throughout his life? Could have been a better student in school. When he was a student, he cheated, as I did took the shortcut always. When he played sports, didn't try his hardest. Would you like that person? I said, no. And he said, what if I told you that person, when he had a girlfriend, had three girlfriends on the side? What if I told you that person, when he had a job, didn't work hard, he went in late, left early? What if I told you that guy across the street could have been a better son, a better friend, a better person? 
would you like that person? And I said, no. And he said, well, then how could you possibly like yourself? I just described you. Wow. And I cried like a baby. And it was the first time anybody had ever told me why I had this soul sickness in my, in my soul that I just never felt good about me. Hmm. And I cried. I, I almost cried out of joy as well as sadness because it was the first time I had heard the truth about me. And, I, and with tears rolling down my face, I said, what do I do? Hmm. And he said in the most loving, kind voice, he said, Craig, in order to build self-esteem, you have to do esteemable acts. I said, what do you mean? And he said, every day you show up and you're a man of honor, integrity, commitment. You lift yourself up and you build self-esteem. Every day if you have a job, I don't care if you drive a taxi cab, be the best taxi driver you can be. Don't make it a job, make it a career. If you have a girlfriend and you make a commitment, you live up to that commitment. If you want to tell 20 girls, you're seeing 19 other girls and be honest and they all are okay with it, fine. <laughs> but be honest, be honest with yourself. And he explained that when you're late and you make a commitment to tell, and you're telling somebody you're going to be somewhere at five and you get there at 520, you hurt them, but you're hurting you more because you're defining yourself as unreliable, a man that's of, that doesn't live up to his commitments. And I've been trying to live that way now for 32 years. Wow, that's unbelievable. So what was your first tangible step, though, walking out of the office? I mean, or wherever you were sitting with him, what, how did you find, like, your purpose? I found my purpose, I think, first by getting a job and being good at it. And did you know what you wanted to do at that point? No, did you I, just had, come I had off graduated law school. I had failed the bar. Oh, I had no right <laughs> passing the bar because I never studied yeah. and never tried my hardest because mm -hmm. I kept underachieving my whole life. Mm -hmm. my, I kind of was, you know, lived with the motto of minimal effort, maximum result. And, you know, my friends used to say, in order to pass the bar, you have to pass the bar. <laughs> and I couldn't pass either one. Right, exactly. Oh, that's and I decided to, I had a roommate from college, worked at Lehman Brothers. I decided to go work on Wall Street. And I started to find something, A, that I was really good at, mm -hmm. that I really liked. And I made it a career. And it brought me a lot of self-esteem. And I would go to work at 6 a.m., stay till 10 o'clock sometime. And I started to work hard and I stopped drinking and I started to feel better and better about myself. And was it hard to take the nightlife aspect out of the equation and the drinking or whatever else was going on on the side? What happened was I started to just feel better about life hmm. and it became easier and easier to stay away from drinking and, and drugs. I went to a 12-step program, hmm. which also helped. I surrounded myself with, you know, like-minded people and it just kind of took on a life of its own. I started to help others right. and it started to make me feel really good. And I've been doing it now for almost 32 plus years. And what was your parents' reaction? How long did it take them to see a change in you? It took a little time. And in fact, you know, a great thing to to tell you about is I went to my dad 
to make apologies for all the damage I had done. And I had it written up, all these things I wanted to say. And mm -hmm. as I'm starting to say, Dad, I am so sorry. Before I can finish the word sorry, he said, stop talking. And I said, Dad, you don't understand. I want to tell you. He said, stop talking. And I stopped talking. And he said, Craig, your words mean nothing to me. You've apologized a thousand times. And he basically said to me, I want desperately to be judged by my intentions, but the world only judges me by my actions. Mm. Don't tell me what you're going to do. Don't tell your mother. Don't tell your brothers. Just live it. Mm. And if you live it, people will see it. That's the only thing that matters in life. And he ended by saying that great men and women don't have to tell anybody how great they are. People just know. That's a great quote. Yeah. You are what you do, not what you say exactly. you do. Yeah. So do you have any regrets about what you did in the past? None. None. That's an interesting answer. Elaborate on that a little bit. I lived an amazing life. Mm -hmm. I hurt one young lady, maybe two, but at the end of the day, I had a lot of fun. I didn't steal anything. I didn't rob. I never got arrested. I was just having the best time. And I have zero regrets because it, it, it all had to happen to be the man I am today. Right. I think a lot of people don't understand that it's okay to make a wrong turn to make a right turn or that you have to go down whatever path you have to take to figure things out. And sometimes having a lot of negative things in your life or partying or it doesn't even have to be negative, but going down a certain path that's different than what you end up on is so important because you wouldn't have gotten there unless you learned those lessons. Agreed. And I think some people really beat themselves up too much and think, oh, I'm starting too late in life to have a second act or to figure it out or I don't know what my purpose is and they get so stuck because they feel like they've aged out of figuring it out. But it's sort of like all the life lessons that you have, in my opinion, are so important because that's how you figure out what you don't want to do and what you're good at and what makes you happy and doesn't make you happy, Agreed. don't you think? I agree. One of the great lessons I learned through Dr. K, and it's true because I can tell you that the three or four worst days of my life have all turned out to be the best days of my life. Mm. And Dr. K used to teach me about making choices, right? Mm -hmm. Our lives are defined by the choices that we make. Mm -hmm. And Dr. K used to teach me about when life comes at you, you have choices. You can react with emotion or you can respond with intellect. When you react with emotion, you make poor choices because you're emotional. When you respond with intellect, you make better choices. I don't need to be right. Mm -hmm. I like to be happy. Mm -hmm. Most people want to be right. Right. And go to any extreme to prove they're right, but I just want to be happy. Right. Right. So Dr. K used to always tell me, you never make anything better by making it worse. Mm. And so when life comes at you and it's not the way you want it, you get have a choice to either react with emotion and make things worse or respond with intellect. I worked for Morgan Stanley in 2008. And I watched the banking crisis. Mm -hmm. The banks almost went out of business. Lehman Brothers went out of business. Bear Stearns went out of business. 
And I watched Morgan Stanley stock go from 70 to six in about a week and a half. And I could have reacted with emotion. And I know a lot of people did. And what did I do? I kind of looked for an opportunity and I got into the gym business Hmm. and I opened up a franchise of gyms called Retro Fitness and ended up doing very well. My wife wanted a divorce about 10 years ago. It was the most painful thing I've ever been through, Mm -hmm. but I divorced with love instead of fighting and I didn't want to fight because of Dr. K and I gave her anything and everything she wanted. And I did it because of my children, and I mm-hmm. did it because of love. It's probably the most beautiful, most esteemable thing I've ever accomplished. Wow. Because today, her and I are best friends, and I have two beautiful daughters that never saw the chaos of a divorce. That's amazing. So I'm 48. I feel like I have friends that I see going out all the time, right? And even at my age, they're constantly going out. They're constantly, their lives revolve around making plans, traveling, what restaurant are we going to? What outfit are we getting? It's just superficial nonsense, right? And I am constantly feeling like a lot of that because I was in the nightclub business for so long. And because I'm the opposite of that now, I've seen a lot of how that takes a toll. But I feel like a lot of that is because people are running from something in their own lives that they're not necessarily happy with. And for people that maybe are not necessarily doing that just to blow off steam and have fun, if it's become a problem and it's affecting their marriages or their work or their lives because they can't keep it together, those to me are people that are kind of running because they don't have a purpose. And so what is your advice then for people that have kind of figured out, yeah, I don't have a purpose. I'm just coasting or I'm chasing or I'm looking for things externally. How would they get on the path of actually finding something that they do like? Because I think that's the hardest thing. Like they've figured out they're not happy, but how do they get on the path of finding happiness when they've been off of that path for so long? It's certainly an inside job, Mm -hmm. right? It certainly starts with making better choices in your life. And I think it also helps to have a purpose by doing charity work, Mm. giving back to others, finding a hobby that inspires them, Mm -hmm. meeting new people in that hobby, right? I I don't need to go out. I don't even enjoy going out that much Mm -hmm. because it doesn't really, I, I don't like the people you meet and it's all superficial. Right. And I find that, you know, whether it be in hobbies or even learning to spend time, quality time by yourself. Mm. And that's something I've also, you know, learned about. I used to think that if I'm by myself, I'm alone. Mm. And I don't look at it that way. You know, I learned from Dr. K, right? If you change the way you look at things, the things you look at change. Mm. And so when I'm my, by myself, I'm not alone. I'm by myself. The truth is I have two beautiful daughters, beautiful life, many wonderful friends, two brothers, family. Mm-hmm. I have a, a wonderful life. Mm-hmm. And I've learned to just love me. Mm-hmm. And I think it starts by doing esteemable acts. And usually that starts by helping others. Right. When I'm helping others and doing for others service, I, I don't have even a chance to think about me. Right. That's a great answer. What would you say to people that are like listening to this story and they're like, wait a minute, he sounds like he was having so much fun. What a great life. 
now he sounds like this boring guy that doesn't like to go out. My question is, what is misunderstood about a purposeful life, really? Well, the truth is, I still love to go out. Mm -hmm. I go to the theater regularly. I'm going to the Nick game tonight. I have season tickets for the Rangers now. I don't even have to sneak in. (laughs) (laughs) I have this wonderful life, and it starts and stops by just constantly doing esteemable acts. Uh, Right When I tell somebody I'm going to be somewhere, I'm there. When I tell somebody I'm going to do something, I do it. Because I have learned that when I don't, I may hurt you, but I hurt me more. And I don't like hurting me. I have this wonderful life today. I love getting up in the morning. And I think most people, a lot of people need alcohol to escape, drugs to escape, food to escape, Mm -hmm. gambling to escape, sex to escape, right? Mm -hmm. And it's all connected. It's just because people don't feel good about self. Right. And even the women you refer to get dressed up and go out. They get attention from strangers. They feel better about Mm -hmm. self. Yeah. And when you feel good about yourself, and it's hard, it it takes time and it takes work. But by doing esteemable acts, it helps. If you ask me today, Craig, do you love yourself? I don't know. But I can tell you I like myself a lot more than I did when I started my journey 32 years ago. Yeah. I love hearing that. That was Mm -hmm. my last question for you. How do you feel about yourself now? I'm a work in progress. Mm-hmm. You know, I still make mistakes. I still want to sneak into places. Mm-hmm. I was at, you know, Walgreens a couple of years ago, and there was an old lady in front of me with 14 items. Mm-hmm. And there was a person at the register, and I walked out with a $1.79 light bulb because I didn't want to wait because sometimes I can be impatient and intolerant and risk my job and getting in trouble for a dollar seventy nine. <laughs> I did go back the next day and I made an amends and I gave the manager, but I'm a work in progress. And so every day I want to do good and I'm always working on myself. You That's know, great. we never should stop because we're human beings. Mm-hmm. We're, we're flawed and we're all flawed, but it feels good to work on yourself mm-hmm. and it feels good to get healthier and healthier. And it all starts and stops with making wise choices. And the only reason why my life looks so different today, I'm an amazing father to two beautiful daughters who I am accountable every second, every minute of the day. And that's another esteemable act, right? Every day I do good and I go to bed, I feel better about me. And I look forward to getting up the next day to do good. There's so much to do in life. Mm -hmm. And that's part of the reason why I wrote this book and now making it into a movie. That's fantastic. I think that's really good advice for people looking for a purpose and trying to figure out their second act in life. So yeah, where where can people get this book? It's online. You can download it and listen to it on Audible. They're starting to make it into a movie. Fantastic. Who's going to play you? They're looking right now maybe at Austin Butler, who uh, from From uh, Elvis? Elvis. Yeah. Oh, wow. So, Do you think he can get your accent down? We'll, we'll see. We'll see. <laughs> he did such a good yeah, job I know, with Elvis. I know. I aligned myself with a producer, director named Michelle Danner, who mm-hmm. just directed a movie called Miranda's Victim Okay. with Andy Garcia and Abigail Breslin and a bunch of stars. And she's going to do the movie, and we'll see. Amazing. I cannot wait for yeah. that. And I hope everybody will go and get the book. Thank you so much, Craig. I appreciate your time. Nice to meet you. You So nice. You too. Thanks.
Thank you so much for listening to our podcast, Misunderstood with Rachel Yucatel. Please be sure to subscribe to the show and give us a five-star rating and review if you like what you hear. You can support the show by joining our Patreon at Patreon slash Misunderstood with Rachel Yucatel. Do you have ideas for the show or guests that you want us to reach out to? Please email us at infomisunderstoodpodcast at gmail.com. Thank you so much, and I can't wait to see you next time.